Hi, this is Jeanette Creamore, or you may know me as JC. Welcome to Laugh, Learn, Lead, a podcast show that helps project sponsors, project managers, and their teams shape their project success stories. I'll be sharing interviews that bring a different perspective to what project success looks and feels like, as well as unpacking our conversations to provide insights and practical tips. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, listeners. In today's episode, I talk with Tony Ardron, an IT program executive and strategy consultant with many years of experience in designing and delivering IT transformation programs. He enjoys leading and working in high-performing teams and delivering challenging projects that make a difference to businesses, their people, and their customers. Across his long careers, he's had experience in banking, insurance, federal and state government, manufacturing, and mining. When he's not working, Tony likes to stay fit and healthy, enjoys reading, and is spending special time with his seven-year-old daughter. Today, we talk about his career from software engineer to strategy consultant, the challenges facing organizations, something we can do to have more successful projects, what he looks for in project managers, and how he fills his energy tank. Good morning, Tony. Thank you so much for um, taking time out to talk to me today. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet you with a role I took on with DXC last year up at Queensland Urban Utilities. And for the small amount of time that we spent together, I really did learn a lot from you. So um, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jeanette. It's, um, it's, a, it's an honour and a pleasure to be invited to be part of your podcast. And awesome. uh, and it was fun working with you. I have to say, at uh, QU, it was uh, it was um, you know a fairly challenging project, let's say, uh, but it was I learned a lot from you as well. Yeah, so I know a little bit about you previously as a software engineer and uh, working on big um, tender responses for multi million dollar contracts. But can you share with the audience and the listeners on a little bit about Tony? Who is he, and what does he like? Yeah, so um, so I'm a kind of engineer by trades, uh, as you mentioned, software engineering. I actually started out uh, straight out of high school as an engineering cadet at uh, what was known those days as BHP Steel, but it's now Blue Scope uh, down at Port Kembla Steelworks. Um, and that was, you know, the cadetship involved, you know, full-time work and part-time study, uh, so seven years. To, to get uh, that engineering degree. So it was a pretty hard slog. Uh, and I actually started out doing materials engineering or metallurgy. Um, <clears throat> but I had a lot of, uh, a bit of experience uh, early on, you know, besides just, you know, photocopying and other menial jobs I get connected to do. I got involved in a large um, automation upgrade project at the, the part of the plant that I was working in, the hot strip mill. And I got uh, interested in, you know, programming and automation systems as a part of that. So, um, you know, I transferred, as a result of that, I got interested, transferred to electrical and computer engineering. And it was pretty exciting because, you know, it was in the, this is in the late 80s. I'm, I'm pretty old, Jeanette. And, uh, <laughs> you know, PC, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. PCs were just kind of infiltrating the workforce, I guess you'd say. Um and, you know, software-based programmable automation systems were just, you know, sort of coming in, uh, being introduced at scale. So it was an exciting time. And I did a bit of programming at high school. I uh, really loved it. So it was a kind of logical progression um, to, a, to a career in, in engineering and IT. 
Um, so like I said, I transferred to electrical and computer engineering and, you know, I worked uh, all around the plant there in Port Kembla. <clears throat> As a cadet, you transferred every six months. So I got to taste lots of different parts of the plant, did lots of work, uh, you know, everything from wiring, wiring panels, running cables, electrical maintenance work, designing and commissioning, you know, electrical upgrades for different parts of the plant. Uh, but over time, you know, I really love the programming and automation systems aspect. So I sort of moved moved to that and specialised in that. Um, and that sort of led me to transfer within BHP a couple of times. I transferred to the engineering division to work on a, you know, large hundred plus million dollar uh, automation upgrades uh, at the Western Port plant down there in Victoria. And uh, then I transferred to, to BHP IT. Uh, to work on another large automation systems upgrade project, uh, this time back in Port Kembler. And uh, around that time, early 2000s, uh, BHP IT decided to outsource, or BHP decided to outsource all their IT to CSC. So, um, you know, that led me to a career specialising in IT, uh, but getting exposure to a whole bunch of industries outside of, uh, you know, the mothership at BHP. Um so, you know, over time uh, at CSC, uh, I guess my aptitudes, uh, my masochistic uh, tendencies led me to team leadership and program and project management um, and sort of more general uh, management roles and eventually into consulting. And as you knew me as a consulting partner, uh, working on uh, sort of large-scale RFP responses, systems integration, digital transformation projects for, for clients. Um, is, you know, my most recent experience at DXC. Yeah, interesting. Um, mm. It's it's weird how we kind of start off in one part of our skill set and then by taking on opportunities, you kind of navigate through another path and then you end up being, um, yeah, more, I think, grounded and rounded to lead teams. Yeah. So, yeah, you yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that you taught me a lot um, last year with DXC is that ability to um, to nurture and maintain good relationships to get things done, that it's not based on your processing skills or your engineering skills. It's based mm. on your leadership skills, which is about relationships. Yeah, I mean, pretty rapidly you learn. Well, it took me a while to learn. Um, you, know, you can't do everything yourself. You have to achieve success with and through others. And um, I was fortunate to, you know, receive quite a bit of uh, coaching and training around uh, around leadership and management. So I've worked on those skills over a long period of time. I like to think I'm reasonably good at it, and I really love working, you know, in high performing teams and trying to get the best out of out of a team. It's one of one of the things I really enjoy about working. Yeah, and that's obvious when they're on the floor uh, with you. I know, um, you know, you travel a lot and you have to look after lots of different clients. And uh, But when you're on the floor, you know how to have fun, which is one of the things that I look for in a good leader, and that is that life's not so serious, you know. We're not doing heart surgery every day, so have a bit of fun. So. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to sometimes hard to um, keep that in the front of mind. But you're absolutely right, Jeanette. Yeah, yeah. So, look, because you work around, you know, lots of different organisations, there's some challenges that they're tackling at the moment. And 
and in the future. From your experience, what do you think organisations are struggling most with at the moment? Yeah, so I had a, I've had a think about about this. Um, you know, putting my technology hat on. Um, you know, I think, and not getting you know too much into buzzwords, but I think artificial intelligence and big data are two massive challenges that are coming already happening, but coming down the pipe for organisations and going to have a transformative effects, disruptive kind of effect on a lot of industries and organisations. Um, so, so that's one. I mean, I don't think we can really predict where that's going to go, end up. Um, you know, I know you know, one of the tenets uh, that I know that you are here to and I agree with is trying to start with the end in mind, but I don't think we know where the end is for that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of theories about how many jobs are going to be destroyed um, as a result, but I think there's going to be a lot created too. Uh, so, you know, I just don't know uh, where that's going to end up, but I think things are going to keep moving really fast and going to keep getting faster and businesses are going to be going to need to be nimble and adapt um, is the is the key challenge there um i don't know hopefully you and i Jeanette, will be retired and uh <laughs> you know sipping pina coladas by the time this plays out you know probably served to us by a robot yeah um i yeah. I, I agree uh, although that it can be scary this you know the ai artificial intelligence um, one of my guests, Mike Stapleton, is Deputy Director General at uh, Transport and Main Roads, and they've actually got a research program at the moment about, um, or, you know, car automation. You know, selfless. You know, uh, what do you call it? Um, self-driving cars. Self-driving, yeah. but it's more about yeah. how the vehicle can communicate with another vehicle. Yeah. Okay. So they're yeah. doing some um, research in that area at the moment, and so, but and he's he's agreeing that it's creating different types of jobs not less so it's not going to replace people it's actually going to create different skills and different thinking and one thing that will definitely not go away is project management <laughs> because we actually need to um, build our capabilities about how to take the strategy to operations you know um, so yeah it was interesting and you've kind of you know hit the nail on the head there about we don't know what the end state's going to look like, but we know we need to be adaptive to um, to whatever mm. we're faced with. So interesting. What yeah. do you think um, organisations are struggling with now? If, if they're, you know, down the pipeline, as you said, you know, AI and other things, what are they struggling with now that kind of is kind of alerting you to some concerns that they not might not be ready for that type of big challenge yeah. in the future? So, look, the other thing, I mean, from a moving away from sort of technology more towards um, people in leadership, I think, in my view anyway, um, I think the big challenge we have in organisations these days is is authenticity. Um, you know, I think in general, in I guess in Western society generally, you know, we seem to be losing faith in authority institutions, you know, including businesses, and, um, you know, we don't really trust authority figures politicians and so on and you know the recent banking royal commission is an example of that um and i'm sure you've seen this too Jeanette. but in organizations this i've seen it play out in terms of leaders delivering one message in public and then behaving a different way um behind closed doors especially when things get tough um i'm sure you know i'm sure you've seen it mm, people yeah. not walking the talk 
Um, so look, this I think this really impacts the performance of organisations. Um, you know, how do you get the best? How do you get people to give their best? How do you get them motivated when they don't trust their leaders? Um, you know, and this goes to the whole why. The question of why? Why do we? What's the why? Why do we? Why are we doing this? Yeah, we need a sense of purpose. <clears throat> you know, otherwise we're just going through the motions. And um, you know, why would I put in? Why would I? Why would I? give my best if I can't trust you, you don't tell me the truth, you, know, you haven't got my back, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I think that's a challenge. And like especially with the next generation of workers coming through, the millennials and so on, you know, they're pretty smart. And uh, they're just, not just going to go along. They're not going to put up with uh, any sort of inauthentic uh, rubbish from, from leaders. I think, you know, that's a challenge um, for especially this, where we seem to be today for organisations to grapple with, being authentic, showing strong leadership, having an inspiring vision uh, to work towards. Mm, get it. I get it. And um, recently I attended uh, Brene Brown here in Melbourne. I don't know if you know Brene, oh, yeah. but she, yeah, oh, what a magical day. But she's been a virtual mentor of mine for about five years now. I do a lot of her yeah. reading and research, but she talks about, you know, daring to lead and that exact thing that you're talking about, vulnerability, and it's about trust and authenticity and, you know, and being um, open and uh, being vulnerable. She talks about being in the arena and not being on the outside, being an observer and making criticism and judgment will get your hands dirty, get in the arena, and then maybe, you know, we can work together. So, yeah, that's so relevant at the moment, that authenticity. Yeah. yeah, so I wasn't familiar with any of uh, Brene Brown's kind of work, but I did notice so many, and especially uh, my female uh, contacts on um, LinkedIn were were posting uh, vigorously <laughs> just recently around meeting uh, Brene Brown and listening to her talk. So I'm gonna uh, it's on my list of things to get a bit more familiar with what she's uh, what she's on about. Yeah, I actually might put in this um, podcast link a link to her famous YouTube. Um, TED Talk, you know, something okay. like 20 million views. Um, right. But, yeah, I encourage anyone, if, if they're looking for someone, a different perspective of how you can, you know, get dare, what she calls dare to lead, um, yeah, it's, it's, she's a brilliant resource and, um, and, you know, alternate way of thinking and she keeps it real for me anyway. So, yeah, and that, right. I think that's what the staff are asking for is, Please be real. Don't make up this fake news or this fake yeah. existence. Be real. Like um, it's okay to bring, you know, stuff from home into work. You know, it, it, there is no life at home and life at work. It's just life. And mm. uh, so, yeah, so I, I love that, Tony. And, look, along the way you and I have seen many projects that have succeeded and failed. So what's something that you believe we could be doing better? If we're trying to, you know, get ahead of the game um, in organisations, what's something we could be doing better to have more successful projects? Well, I guess my um, the first thing to say is my lens on these things, uh, you know, comes from <clears throat> being on the the vendor side, the system integrator side of projects. Um, that's been my career for the last quite a few years so that's that's my lens on all of this um so keep that in mind so i guess the first thing to say about projects and why they fail is most projects fail before they've even started 
Um, so, you know, having the clear objectives and the scope and, and a realistic budget and a schedule uh, is, is really important. Um, and you know what? So often it's not the case. And, you know, I've seen many times <clears throat> PMs or organisations being pressured to sign up to something that's not realistic um, to satisfy an arbitrary goal. And, you know, you're starting behind the eight ball. Um, so that's the first thing to say. Most projects fail before they even start. Mm. Um, and another observation I'd make, again, with this vendor system integrator lens on is, and I've been frustrated with this over a long period of time in my career, I just don't think the RFP process or RF whatever process lends itself to good results in, in projects. Um you know, it's, I think too much of the planning and estimating in that in that process is done in inverted commas for free uh, as part of the bid process, and it, I don't think that's conducive to coming up with a full and accurate budget and scope and understanding. You know, uh, all the um, all the various uh, complexities within the organisation that you're bidding for. <clears throat> you know, the tenderer doesn't get exposed to the business case, the underlying business drivers until you know, probably too late. Uh, there's no, no participation in the early organisational change activities, you know, getting buy-in and alignment from stakeholders. And, um, you know, there's a danger that you kind of assume that that's been done or you're assured that it has been done when you rock, once you've won the RFP and you rock up to start the project. And um, I've seen it happen where, you know, you can get a big shock, um, a misalignment of expectations. And, you know, the project is uh, in difficulty, you know, from day one. <clears throat> so, you know, that's that's something. So I think the lesson out of that is, you know, we need to, um, the project team, uh, we need to spend more time and effort to make sure the sponsors and stakeholders are fully committed to the objectives and, and everybody understands and signs up to, to the project and all the all of the implications that project will have on an organization early so those early things are so so important that's uh, what i find Jeanette. yeah i like i'm two things you picked up there and i'm glad that you've um, set the scene as a vendor because i think that you know organizations sometimes don't really appreciate what the vendor goes through that we yeah. kind of keep asking the vendor to do more for less and yet yeah. I believe that project success comes from when the vendor is truly a partner and they do get visibility to some of those key business decisions and, and it loops back to the why again, you know, what's in the business case? Why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? What What's the end goal? And maybe, and I agree, like I've, I have managed so many tender processes where um, I've had international vendors fly into Australia and do one week um, kind of proof of concept work as part of their um, process, but I was able to convince the sponsor to pay for that. You know, um, it's yeah. part of your investment is don't ask the vendor to do it for free because they actually might not give you the best because they, you know, but if you say to the vendor, hey, we will pay you to bring your best to us on what we can expect. Well, yeah, it's going to be, and I, I, and I can say that I did that with Village Roadshow um, and I found that the technical lead in that and um, Adrian, who also I've interviewed on my podcast, he was such a supporter of that and working with him, you know, we had people 
flown in from um, America and Europe to present what their technology, but not just that. We had the operational teams working with their operational teams saying, well, what would it look like as an experience in the park? How would our customers be treated? You know, what would they see on the screen if they were, you know, trying to buy multiple tickets for multiple parks? And, yeah, that more hands-on proof of concept work as part of the tender process, I think we need to do more of it because it allows the vendor to get more exposed to what the business is trying to achieve. And so then as part of you know, your final and best offer, you can actually come with a better position. You're better informed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> Look, and the other observation I'd make about projects succeeding and failing, um, I think it's true to say the best projects are done by the best teams. Um, and, you know, I think it's unrealistic to expect a big project can run smoothly when you just throw a team together for that project. Um, <clears throat> my most successful projects in my career and the most fun that I've had has been with, um, you know, project teams that have gelled together over a period of time. And, you know, there's trust uh, within the team members and, and a high-performing culture that you can roll from one project to the next. I, I was really fortunate uh, at a point in my career to have uh, an arrangement like that where we had a, a core team of you know really good people all trusted each other and we rolled from one project to the next project. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a client that's, that sponsored us and invested in us to do that. And, and it was just the, you know, the most satisfying, rewarding, successful you know um, environment, I think, to work in. So... You know, going back to the RFB process, you know, that's it's not compatible, um, you know, with that kind of philosophy. And, um, you know, I don't know what that means in terms of fixing, but uh, does it mean more insourcing? Does it mean a use of panels uh, of trusted, you know, uh, vendors where you invest in those vendors to form high-performing teams and move them from one project to the next? I don't know what the answer is. Is it all of the above? Uh, but I think you can't really underestimate the importance of a team and, a, and trust within a team. And it takes time to build up. And in the hustle bustle of, you know, a, you know, multi-million dollar projects being thrown together and, you know, from day one, you've got to start pumping out deliverables and stuff like that. You just do not have time, in my experience, to, to build all that trust and, uh, and teaming uh, that, that gives you the best results. Oh, absolutely. Like... How many times do we see um, a team coming together and the person walks in the door and they go, oh, by the way, this is your desk. This is the person you're reporting to. Here's a few documents. And by the way, you're wanted in a meeting tomorrow. You need to make a decision about this. Like there's no kind of onboarding around all the purpose of the project, um, the objective of trying to do this. is the culture of how we work together. This is a, our project yeah. brand. Um, these are the boundaries for how we like to it's okay work and this is not okay so if you kind of do the not okay stuff we're going to pull you up on it but like there's none of that forming and um yeah i i get it tony i really get that and so that's what i love doing is working with organizations when they're just establishing a program of work and getting all that the vendor relationship and their sponsor relationship and their team norms sorted out and um, set that kind of what I call the project vibe. What's what's that yeah. success feel and uh, look like? Because we want to experience that as much as what we can. Yeah, it's really important. And, and I know, um, you know, 
we worked together on that that project at QUU. We did, I did uh, put some effort in to at the beginning of the project to do all those things that you just talked about, um, expectation setting and making sure people understood the why and uh, and all of the comings and goings of the the project and you know a, a solid induction. And that was at the beginning, but uh, you know, as you experienced, people keep coming and going in projects like that as you ramp up and ramp down. <clears throat> There's a real challenge um, to to deliver that kind of induction to every new person that joins the project every second week. Um, and you know, I think you know we probably could have done better there. And you, you observed you observed some of the consequences, I think, of of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. The challenge. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a fun maker and so I like to get to know my team. And so, I, you know, when, when I get looked at to say, you know, why are you laughing? Why do you have music? Like I can remember when we had the stand-ups and it was um, people in my project team, one of the projects that I was running, we were the ones that brought the music to the stand-ups every morning. Remember that? I don't know if you yeah. were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. And it was looked at and frowned upon. Yeah, and I'm like, no. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Some basic stuff, but um, anyway, we're not going to go into a case study at this time. We can do that in another episode, Tony. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, no, thank you for that. I really like that you, um, you you gave us some three good key things there. Um, that yeah, I think I might unpack one of those next episode. Actually, um, yeah. So thanks for that insight. Um. As you were saying earlier, you can't do projects alone. You have to recruit people. When you're working with a project manager, what do you look for to know that you've got the confidence that they're going to get the job done and that they're going to bring the results to the project that's needed? What's something that you look for? Yeah. <clears throat> so this is a, it's a difficult one because, um, you know, everybody's different. And there's no sort of one template for a good project manager, I don't think. Um, you know, there's all the obvious stuff around their experience and track record and certifications and those things <clears throat> that you, you need to have as a starting point. Um, but the things, kind of things I look for, um, and, and one of the things that I, I experienced with you, uh, Jeanette, you know, the energy and enthusiasm, you need to feel that uh, early. <clears throat> um, you need to be able to pick that up. I think that's a good sign for someone who's, and maybe bring in the fun, as, as you mentioned. Uh, it's a good sign for somebody who's you know going to commit and deliver for you. Um, another thing I think the project managers have to ask a lot of questions and they need to insist they get the whole picture about what they're doing uh, and not sort of stay within a box. And they need to make sure, you now they need to be asking all the questions to make sure their expectations of them are crystal clear. Um, that's pretty pretty important. Asking a lot of questions. Um, what I really, and this plays on some of the things we discussed earlier, I think I really look for someone who's team oriented. Um, you know, you need to be treating your team with care and respect, I think is so important. Um, you know, you have to be able to <clears throat> protect your team against unrealistic goals and expectations um, and, you know, not flog them because management has given you a hard time. Takes a lot of courage, and I've seen, I've seen both kinds of behaviour here. I've seen in my past, you know, project managers and program managers who, um, you know, reflect 
the pressure that they're feeling from upper management onto their team and, and treat their team harshly. Um, and I've seen project managers, um, you know, acting as a as an umbrella uh, to protect their team from from those kind of things. And um, <clears throat> and I think you know it's it's easy to deduce which one that I prefer. <laughs> you have to look after your team. Um, I think that's important. Somebody who's who cares and respects their team and looks after them is critical. Um, look, the other thing I'm pretty strong on project management sort of methodology and, and discipline. Um, Jeanette, uh, I think it's kind of underrated. There's a lot of PMs I think that aren't really strong on that, taking a rigorous approach. Uh, I've been sort of schooled in this um, over a long period of time, you know, estimating, planning, scheduling, etc., and and the rigor behind that, the science behind that, and you know, coming up with a plan is one thing, but tracking against the plan is is so important. You know, tracking. Uh, on a regular basis where you are with your actuals, your estimates are complete, your estimate at completion. These are kind of boring, you know, things, but um, they're so they're so important uh, because, you know, nothing destroys a PM's credibility quicker than when you can't answer the question, when will this be finished? And, you know, answer it with confidence, with some science behind what you're saying. Um, so, you know, project managers who, who understand and get that discipline and can do the discipline, <clears throat> you know, they might have a, a scheduler or a, a, someone to help support them with uh, the arms and legs on it. But, um, you know, you need to, especially as projects get bigger, but you need to understand uh, that and, and why it's important. Um, I guess the last thing I'd say there is uh, the project manager needs to be honest and brave and uh, not be afraid to raise issues early, I think, and ask for help. Um, you know, for me, rule number one in projects is no surprises. So I don't want to be surprised. So a good PM really has to be fearless and raise the issues and surface the problems. Don't try and cover up or hide them or, you know, be that uh, calm on the surface and, you know, the duck, you know, trying to paddle really fast underneath i mean i think you need when you need help you need to ask for it and be honest um so that's something i look for in a good project manager as well Mm. geez you got some good ones there um and i'll probably just the project manager practice or discipline or you know that Mm -hmm. trusted industry expertise i'm struggling to see that being nurtured um with uh, the, I think there's some c- conflicts in what we ask our PMs to do and what they've been um, trained or educated in in the methodologies. And a methodology for me is a methodology, you know, whatever you want to use. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm finding it that a PM will specialise in parts of what we would call a skill set, like you said, budgeting, schedules, risk issues. But I like what you said about the um, the confidence and the science behind that, and I think that's what we're not helping the project manager achieve. They kind of yeah. know how to do it, but we're not helping them be confident and and to have a voice around the science that they've used to come up with those answers. And I, I really like that. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that um, you know <clears throat> in the in the organisation that um, that I sort of grew up in here that they they did spend a lot of time training 
uh, their PMs in in this discipline. Um, you know, project management, <clears throat> best practices, and stuff like that. And uh, it's kind of stuck with me. Um, I think it's I think it's really important. Mm. As much as what the other bit is, which is what you're saying, is um, caring about your team, being yeah. honest, escalating issues early. All, all that, yeah, you know, what I call the roundness of the PM um, is kind yeah. of, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a combination of the soft skills and the hard skills, absolutely. Um, yeah. You need to have both. Tony, you, as I was mentioned earlier in here, you you travelled you know, um, in some um, high-pressure negotiation situations lots of times with um, vendors yeah. and customers and um, trying to keep, you know, ahead of the game. and but you must burn out. Like you must, your energy tank must get empty sometimes where it's yeah. just too much. How do you go about refreshing and resetting for your next challenge? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, that project we were together on in Queensland, so, you know, being based in Sydney, <clears throat> it was a it was a drain uh, on the energy levels, you know, absolutely. Uh, spent a lot of time travelling uh, up and down, you know, I really uh, got sick of the alarm going off at three thirty or four a.m. on a Monday morning to get get on the plane and stuff. It does does wear you down. Um, but having said that, I think I think I've always been pretty good at switching off outside of work. I mean, it gets harder and harder these days with you know you've got your phone always beeping at you and stuff. But I'm pretty good at switching off, and I think you need to be able to do that. Um, you know, not bring work home as, as much as you can. Um, but what I um, the things that I kind of do to try and, you know, reset or, or get some energy back, I do I do like to have some fun with my daughter. Um, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, having fun. Um, it's underrated, really. you got to have some fun in your life. And uh, that's kind of one of the things that I try and um, make sure I, I do with, um, with my little girl. She's seven. She's a you know, bundle of joy and laughs and all the other things that go along with it. Um, so, you know, having some fun, uh, definitely brings the energy levels back up. Um, but you know, it's a challenge, you know, coming from the background that I come from, um, you know, I need to, I find I need to try and rein in my natural, uh, project management or task focused tendencies, uh, with my little girl, just to make sure we do have fun. <clears throat> so, you know, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant battle with her, but, um, that's, um, you know, that's something. Uh, that gives me energy playing with her. Um, I guess, you know, the other obvious ones really are getting enough sleep, which can be a challenge with those, you know, 3.30 a.m. wake-ups and so on. Uh, but the, the other things that I like to do, I, I do uh, try and stay fit and healthy, a uh, bit of exercise, going to the gym, riding a bike, doing some running, stuff like that. Um, it's kind of meditative. Uh, you sort of take your mind completely off um off the, the pressures at work and concentrate on something else is great. Um, and I do, um, I like to read as well. And, you know, obviously coming from my background in engineering and technology, I do read a bit about technology and so on, but I also try and take an interest in other things, um, history and politics and geography and those kind of things um, just to keep the brain ticking. And um, that, that sort of, Helps me, <clears throat> helps me uh, bring the energy levels back up as well. Mm. Have you got a book on your bedside table at the moment, or I do, I do. 
Um, the one that's currently there, uh, it's being a little bit neglected at the minute, um, but uh, it's called uh, On Any Other Day mm. um, uh, by Lee Sales, you know, the lady who does the 7.30 report uh, on ABC. Okay. Um, yeah, she's written a book about, um, it's about, uh, it's about where you can be blindsided by by some event that completely changes your life and how people cope with that um, and, you know, the resilience, how you, how, you, how you come back from a, you know, sort of a devastating life event that just sort of hits you on a random Tuesday. That's pretty interesting. Um, my wife recommended it to me. In fact, I think she bought it for me for, for Christmas. Uh, so that's um that's my current book on the bedside table and um look I've got a huge stack of books uh you know one one step removed from the bedside table as well that I I uh, feel like I need to work through and uh you know stop uh, binging you know things on Netflix yeah instead. well what is your go-to binge on Netflix do you have one um at the moment i'm working my way through uh the latest series of uh, oranges the new black that's uh, that's what i'm doing at the minute what's that about uh it's it's uh based in a women's prison in the us oh. and uh all the, all the crazy characters uh things they get up to so another prisoner b smith type scenario for those yeah. that were born in the uh, '60s, would know that episode. Would know that show. Yeah, there's a there's a few B Smiths and freaks in there. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, no, I I must admit, when I do a Netflix binge, my daughter and I love Gilmore Girls. It's um. Oh, okay. We've been watching Gilmore Girls. Well, she's thirty now. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of like we kind of get referred to as the Rory and Lorelai. Um, mother and daughter <laughs> team from time to time and what we do is some stupid things and um, yeah so that's kind of my binge if I want to kind of just chill out and not like okay. think, I turn on episodes that you know we've watched you know 10 times over already but yeah that's my kind of binge yeah. on Netflix is Gilmore Girls. Yeah, okay I mean guilty uh, guilty admission before the days of Netflix I think I might have seen a few episodes of that show so I know who you're talking about Lorelai and <laughs> And Rory, yeah. So the other, yes. the other thing I tend to gravitate towards as well, Jeanette, um, is I'm I'm just a freak for uh, you know space space and science fiction. I just anything that pops up on Netflix uh, that's got anything to do with space travel or science fiction, I'm I'm into in a flash. So uh, I really like that stuff. Well, if you uh, one thing, go on Netflix, search for Brene Brown and her fifty minute uh, recording of her presentation was released around Easter this year. So it's still on Netflix. Um, right. I think it's called Courage or something. Um, but, yeah, Brene Brown, it'll come up. So, yeah, there's, there's, your, there's your go-to on the weekend, just 50 it's minutes it's of um, projects. Okay. Yeah, that's your own little Netflix binge on the weekend. So, look, okay. thank you so much for today, Tony. It's um, been a joy to, uh, to share some of your story and to reflect on... Uh, well, you know, the last last year, and but also moving forward, I, I wish you well in um, your next adventure, whatever that is, um, and hopefully we get to work together again sometime. Thanks, Jeanette. It's been uh, it's been fun, and absolutely, um, it will be great to work together again. And you never know. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a few ideas to take action. 
I would love for you to rate and review the show. I too need feedback to learn. Cheers for now. Remember, a day without laughter is a day wasted. 